You're listening to From the Bibliophiles, a science podcast discussing how storytelling succeeds in communicating difficult science concepts. I'm your host and interviewer, Kenna Castleberry. If you're a new listener, you can find our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other places. Be sure to give us a five-star review if you like our show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, like it and share it with your friends. This episode features an exclusive interview with Sam Keen, who we've had on the show before. Sam's new book, The Ice Pick Surgeon, is the topic of this episode. This book is available for purchase everywhere and is brand new, and looks into the stories of scientists who got obsessed with an idea and then went way too far with it. From Thomas Edison's electric chair campaign to Cleopatra, these stories are sure to surprise and thrill you. I've ordered my copy, and I'm extremely excited to read it. Sam's writing has always been of the highest quality, as he's done his research thoroughly and effectively. If you want to know more about Sam Keen or his podcast, The Disappearing Spoon, you can find out more on his website, www.samkeen.com. That's S-A-M-K-E-A-N.com. Now for the interview. You know, this book, The Ice Pick Surgeon, really fascinating idea as far as scientists who are going way too far with something. I'm curious where the title came from. Is there a specific story within the book about an ice pick surgeon? Or or was that just kind of a catchy title that you were like, oh, this is going to be great. People are going to be invested in this. Well, I hope they're invested. I hope they're excited about the title. But yes, it does refer to a specific scientist in there specifically a doctor named Walter Freeman. And he's kind of notorious nowadays as the ice pick lobotomist. And he got that name because he performed lobotomies, a notorious type of brain surgery. Uh, He performed them actually with an ice pick that he actually pulled out of his kitchen drawer one day and decided it would be a good tool to monkey around in people's brains with. So it does come from a specific story in the book. And I picked it as the title story because I think it's kind of a, uh, an exemplary example. Freeman was one of those people who started off with very good intentions in that he wanted to treat mental illness and he really didn't have many other options. They didn't have psychiatric drugs at the time. They didn't have any other treatments really. And surgery on the brain was really the only way to do it. Otherwise, people would end up languishing in asylums for sometimes decades at a time with no way to treat them. So at the beginning, as I explained in the book, lobotomies were defensible in some cases. And that sounds weird to us, but it's the (laughs) truth. Only problem was Walter Freeman really took things way too far and started pushing them on people who didn't really need them. He started doing up to 25 of them a day. He performed them on Rosemary Kennedy, who was John F. Kennedy, president, her sister. He performed them even on children as young as four years old. So he did these very reckless things, pushed it way too far. And that's why I think he was such an interesting character, because, again, he had good intentions at the beginning, but he got so obsessed with the idea that he took things way too far and ruined a lot of people's lives. And you see that theme coming up over and over in the book, people with good intentions who go too far and end up in kind of as villains in the annals of history. 
So that kind of leads into my next question, which is obviously, you know, there's a stereotype of like a mad scientist or an evil scientist who does usually take things way too far to do um, whatever their their cause is. Was that kind of the inspiration for this book or was it more just you had this thought one day of, oh, I want to I want to, you know, have sort of an anthology of who's been kind of going too far in science? Yeah, it was really a combination of both of those things, I think, where I've always enjoyed true crime. I think there's kind of a lurid fascination we all have with people who cross the law and do bad things. And I knew there were cases out there of scientists who were doing those bad things. Uh, but I wanted to stay away from, you know, scientists who just robbed things, you know, maybe robbed someone for money or, you know, committed a murder in the name of passion or something like that. These stories in the book are really about scientists who started off pursuing knowledge. And that was really their goal. And the pursuit of knowledge is usually a good thing. It's what drives scientists. It gets them up early in the morning, keeps them in the lab late at night. It's a good thing in most cases. But again, that obsession really uh, got a hold of these people's minds. And then they ended up trampling ethical boundaries, committing crimes. So that kind of duality where they're pursuing science, which is usually a good thing, but then they end up committing crimes in the name of science. I thought that was a really kind of fascinating twist on a normal true crime tale and kind of brought it to a different level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and just the fact it puts the scientists in a different light where it's not, they're not necessarily crazy. They had good intentions. Yeah, exactly. There's some sadistic cases in the book, things like Nazi experiments, things like that, where there were frankly no redeeming qualities to the work they were doing. But in a lot of cases, there is this ambiguity where you can see why at the start they did have good intentions, but then they broke bad. That that kind of makes the book even more fascinating in a sense, because you have that gray area. Yeah, the gray area and one thing I really wanted to do with the book was to show us that these evil stories aren't all safely buried in our past, that they really, they can color how, um, you know, science interacts with the public today, color the public perception of science. And I think by really understanding these stories, we can hopefully sort of catch the same reasoning, the same bad reasoning, the same mistakes that people are making today, and maybe hopefully kind of nip things in the bud and stop it before it gets started. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So just kind of segueing into my next question, it sounds like obviously you've done a lot of research and and looked at, you know, multiple stories from around the world. What was kind of the research process for you in creating this book? Was it interviewing people? Was it reading up on stories or, or a combination of the two? With this book, it was mostly looking at historical sources. Uh, a lot of these stories, you know, date back to even early 1900s, where a lot of the people aren't around. But in a lot of cases, there is still this rich detail out there, because even at the time, people were kind of horrified and fascinated at the same time with a lot of these stories. So I was surprised at how rich the details were in a lot of cases. Um, you know, there were tabloid newspaper stories about them, and uh, in some cases, some kind of overlooked archival material, things like that. That's, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and like you said earlier, the fact that these stories are still around 
makes them relevant, which is yeah, really, they, they really kind of cast a shadow. Yeah. Some of them, you know, took place in the time of. Uh, I mean, there's a story about the Unabomber in there, which obviously is in most people's memory. There's a story about a chemist who a crooked chemist had a drug lab in Massachusetts in the 2010s. So these stories really extend over several hundred years, but. Even with the early ones, as I said, the shadow is still cast on science and society in general nowadays. That leads great into my next question, which is kind of what was your favorite story to look into or research or, or maybe something that surprised you that you weren't looking for originally? The, the Freeman story that I mentioned about the lobotomist was a really fascinating one to write. The other story that stands out is another case where you're... You kind of sympathize with the character on some level, but you just watch him make mistake after mistake and just think, what are you doing? Oh, it's so frustrating. It was a story of a chemist named Harry Gold, and he's kind of obscure today, but during the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb, there were spies inside Los Alamos who were giving documents, stealing documents that were getting to the Soviet Union. And then the Soviet Union used those to build its own atomic weapons. Harry Gold, the chemist, was basically the courier who took the documents from the spies at Los Alamos and gave them to the Soviet Union. And he was really instrumental in not only carrying the documents, but recruiting spies, um, kind of keeping them happy, keeping this work going. And he really played an important part, not only in getting those documents, but later after he got caught, he was implicated in the deaths of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. So he was really involved in the most consequential spy ring of the 20th century. But all he ever wanted to do was just be a chemist. He was happiest when he was in the lab with the test tubes and things like that. And in fact, when the stress of spying got to be too much, he didn't go, you know, on a vacation or try to blow off steam in another way. He would go into the chemistry lab and actually do a few hours of experiments to decompress. That was the way he dealt with the stress. And all he ever wanted to do was work in a lab. But you just see him make these mistakes, end up getting dragged in and being one of the most important spies of the 20th century. Wow. What a fascinating story. And I'm looking forward to reading it in the new book. So just two more questions, and then I'll let you go. The first one is more of a, a philosophical overarching question, which is, do you think that, you know, as, as you've been researching, as you've been writing, um, and you've been reading these stories, do you think that the majority of these scientists are just a victim of their own curiosity, in a sense, where they they just can't stop themselves from going too far? Or do you think that there's a moment, or maybe a series of moments, where they turn and they they know that they're going too far but there's no point in turning around sort of thing yeah it's a really good question uh there's a couple things i would say there i think i would avoid the word victim right that it was usually the people who were suffering that ended up being more the victims i think there were a couple cases or well i would say actually i think it was more of an unconscious process where if you had taken them at the beginning and kind of revealed what was going to happen to them at the end, I think in a couple of cases, they might have been kind of horrified. It was just that when they were in the moment, it was just small compromise after small compromise. And you can watch this step by step by step just happen over and over. It was really kind of shocking how you, again, you see these same justification, same rationalization, same mistakes over and over, 
different fields, different centuries. It's really kind of startling, these patterns that start to arise. And so I think it was probably more of an unconscious process going on in their heads where they knew they were kind of making a small compromise at each step, but the overall pattern was maybe obscured to them for exactly the reasons that you mentioned, because their curiosity just got the better of them in some ways. So maybe it sounds like they're compromising and then it adds up to a bigger, bigger, bigger problem. Yeah, you just see them make those those small steps and small mistakes over and over. After, you know, after people read this book, how do you think, or if they will, how do you think their opinions will change about scientists or science in general, or if, if they will at all? I don't know if it'll change people's general opinions about science, because I emphasize in the book, and I would emphasize in life and in my other books, I think you get this sense that science has really done amazing things, and we should be feel blessed that we live in a time when science has done all these things. It's liberated us from diseases, made our lives easier in a lot of ways, and I think even kind of enriched us spiritually as well, and all of the amazing, wonderful things it's revealed about the origin of human beings, the fate of the cosmos, these big picture questions. So I think people coming to the book will still probably feel that afterward. But one thing I do try to do with the book is, and all my books, is show that science is really a human activity. There are the joys of science, the sorrows of science, there are heroes and there are villains. And in this book, I just happen to focus a little bit more on the villains, the rogues of science. So I think it will expand the sense that science is a human activity. I don't think it will undermine the general good science has done. But I do think it's important that we, uh, people in the science community, kind of face up to the mistakes that happened in the past because it will help us eliminate those mistakes in the future and make sure that science really is a force for good in the world. No, that's that's a really good motive to have for that book and, and hopefully pick, people pick that up when they read it. So Yeah, awesome. and I think it's really important because they are stories in the book. That's one thing I want to emphasize is that these are stories about people and stories just hit home in a way that, you know, you can debate a few bullet points of ethical issues and we should avoid this, blah, blah, blah. But when you see it rendered as a story, it really hits home. And that's when you remember it and you feel it and you remember to watch out for it yourself.